The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, this is Jay Conzo. I wrote a book called Break the Wheel, which is a book about what to do when you make choices at work, when the best practices and the conventional wisdom just won't cut it anymore. And you are listening to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. Hello and welcome to this hopefully short-lived series that will be airing in addition to the weekly marketing book podcast interviews. I'm your host, Douglas Burdett, and my goal during this unusual time is to reconnect you with past guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, share some ideas and inspiration, and maybe a much-needed laugh or two. I've interviewed over 200 authors on the show, and my plan is to continue this series until I either run out of authors or quarantine, whichever comes first. A word of warning, the host and guest may very likely be drinking cocktails during these conversations. I mean, come on. They are recorded during the cocktail hour. To find the show notes for each episode with pictures of each guest and links mentioned in their conversation, visit marketingbookcocktails.com. Marketingbookcocktails.com. See what I did there? And if you'd like to join the conversation, email a voice recording to me at douglas at salesartillery.com, and I'll try to include it in a future episode. I'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat. Jay Aconzo, welcome to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. How are you? From one podcaster to another, I just so appreciate what you're doing right now. And also, 50% of my job right now is daddy daycare. I have a toddler who's uh, one and a half. And so the fact that this is a work-related excuse to hole up in a corner of my apartment in Boston, drink a nice cocktail, and hang out with you. Like, we should do this all the time. Well, I suffer from my art, Jay. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all about uh, service above self. So um, I'm glad that I could help with that. Uh, a one-and-a-half-year-old brings back uh, fond memories because what's going to happen, Jay, is you're going to forget about, you know, the sleepless nights and, and all that sort of thing. And... <laughs> You're going to miss it. And it's funny because my daughter, as listeners will know, she's uh, 22, college senior. She comes home from spring break and they said, don't come back. And so anyway, she's been at home and it's been great having her here. And just today, because she finished her final exam, she was going through all these videos we have from like the early 90s and then even in 98, 2001, about the time she was about three or so. And she's looking at all these videos of when she was little and she's getting the biggest kick out of it. So what I want you to do, Jay, is make sure you are recording <laughs> the one and a half year old uh, on video and, and saving it somewhere. I'm pretty sure she already thinks she's like a YouTube star or something. Not that we're allowing her to be on any social channel whatsoever, even though we would hold the phone. Like she's, I don't put her on my Instagram except for like the, the private uh, close friend setting like she is nowhere to be found on the internet anymore um even though i started to do what a lot of us do which is we share photos of our kids to our main feeds and i was like you know she has no say in this this is not appropriate and i i quickly stopped and and i, I appreciate that douglas because the other day i was having a conversation over zoom as conversations now happen with a buddy of mine who has a, a one-year-old so he's a few months behind me 
And we were both like, wow, someday and not that far in the future, but several months, hopefully in the future, when this is a little bit behind us, we're going to look back on this and say, I got literal days worth of time in my life with my young daughter that I would not have gotten otherwise. I mean, that's not that's not even a silver lining. It's like a whole silver cloud. You know what I mean? It's it's unbelievable. Wow, and this is your uh, first child? Oh, she's my first. Yeah, so she's okay. my world. And you're in Boston. I had thought that, it, uh, weren't you living up in um, uh, the New York or Connecticut area? I was. I have, my wife and I counted the other day. We Because our, our release is up for renewal right now. So I, I have moved eight times in 11 years. Wow. Yeah, that's too many times. I'm here to report that is too many times to, to move you and your wife and now a dog and a toddler. And so we were back in Boston where we were here. We were uh, home here for about nine years. So we're back up here. Well, thank you for your service in either the circus or the U.S. Army. Whichever it is you've been in has kept you moving so much. <laughs> been quite a circus, I'll tell you that. Right, right. So, uh, Jay, but you're you're doing okay. You have, unlike Mark Schaefer and, and Rebecca Schaefer, you haven't uh, gotten sick. You don't have anybody uh, not well at your home. No, and I, I heard about Mark, and I, I reached out to him, and you know he's true to form, a fighter, and um, I'm glad to see he's he's on the mend. But uh, so far, knock on all the wood you can find, we're we're doing okay, and so is my extended family. My my grandmother was in the hospital. She's 91. It was right before this got serious, and uh, so at the tail end of her stay, after a very minor procedure. Um, we were not allowed to visit her. She could only take phone calls once in a while. And so that was pretty scary, but she's home too. And she's safe and she's, she lives with her elder daughter and their family. So she's got a lot of people around her. So aside from that, it's almost like she slid in under the door before this thing closed. But oh, wow. we're, we're very lucky. That's great. You know, in an earlier episode of authors in quarantine getting cocktails, I was talking to Rand Fishkin and his grandparents are in their 90s. And he said that he goes to the nursing home and then he goes to the window and then talks to them on the phone that that is beautiful and and look that's like so much it, it's terrible what's happening but i'm taking a lot of solace in how much warm human spirit is pouring out and how much creativity is being shown and practiced and and i don't even just mean in the work sense just everywhere and i think what we what we try to do too much is we try to compare what we're experiencing on the individual level, like the story from our friend Rand uh, or somebody who did something with their kid and it was very delightful in their backyard. It was creative, whatever. We try to compare that and try to make sense of it as it relates to the news. And the news makes money on sensationalism and Mm -hmm. clicks and eyeballs. And so they're only going to focus on the bad and journalists do a wonderful thing. And journalists are incredibly valuable. And and yet, I think we just need to make sure our diet doesn't include only news reporting because we'll go crazy. Absolutely. And the television news, as listeners may have heard me say before, you know, there, I think it was Scott Adams' last book I, I interviewed him about. It's called, um, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, there's only been about 280. What? Uh, <laughs> it was called um, Loser Think. Loser Think. I apologize, Mr. Adams. Anyway, terrific book and not political like he normally is, but he uh, talked about how, you know, don't knock the television news media because uh, what they're doing is they're trying to keep you outraged and get you filled with whatever it is, cortisol or or whatever it is to keep you watching 
the news to get you either outraged or angry or excited. So you'll continue to watch the TV commercials. And he said, look, it works really for their, it works really well for their business model, but that's not, don't, don't confuse that with the news media. And so uh, Joey Coleman, who was another guest who I'm sure you've run into on the speaking circuit, he was saying, yeah, he didn't want, he can't watch any television news and he watch, he, he reads all his news online and he makes sure to read half of it from outside the United States. You know, so whatever country you're in, try to read something from, uh, from foreign sources as well. And uh, I've been trying to do that, but I tell you, ever since I stopped watching television news some time ago, my mental health just got so much better. And I think it's even more important right now. Here, here. Amen. I love that take so much. No, no notes. No notes. <laughs> so, so Jay Kunzo, you were on episode 214, uh, and this was in February of 2009. And we talked about your book, Break the Wheel, Question Best Practices, Hone Your Intuition, and Do Your Best Work. And for those people that haven't heard that, or maybe they're new to the Marketing Book Podcast, and certainly authors in quarantine getting cocktails, remind everyone, in your own words, who you are, what you do these days, and and what you have authored. Sure. I mean, it, you know, what I do constantly changes, and even sometimes how I do it a little bit, that, that changes here and there. But I think why I do it is something that mostly stays the same, which is I, I just really love helping people find and share their voices to make a difference through the created work. And that last part is really important to me. Like I identify as a maker of stuff as a writer and now a podcaster and documentarian and now author. Like it just, I like making stuff. It's really hard to sum up like what it is I do in a pithy way because I don't want to just do one thing ever. Um, But with this book, it was very much born out of that frenetic kind of like moving all over the place in terms of what I was doing and a little bit and how I was doing it, but the why staying the same, uh, which is, you know, it's kind of a treatise and an exploration through science and history and story about why best practices cause so many problems in the workplace for careers, for customers, for companies, and tried to come at it with a very hopefully thoughtful level-headed view, albeit with a passionate rally cry at the end for for better work. So, it you know, it fits right in with why I do what I do in terms of what I mean right now anyway, I'm focused on building a company called Marketing Showrunners which teaches makers and marketers how to make great podcasts and video series. And so that just happens to be what I'm doing right now, but it's part of of why I do what I do. And possibly with the exception of interviewing Seth Godin, you are the person that makes me the most self-conscious when I'm interviewing you on my podcast because of that. First of all, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> but sometimes I, I read your, well, I, I sometimes I, I subscribe to your, uh, your podcast and I read your, uh, what you're writing. And, uh, I, I think, Oh gosh, Oh man. Yeah. Gosh. It, the, the reason it's so good is because I, you know, somewhat experienced podcaster, I'm reading this and I go, man, he really knows he's inside my head. <laughs> Damn you, Jay Akunzo. But then it, it incites me to um, take uh, action. But wait a minute. Let's go down a little bit further Jay Akunzo lane, okay? Just so people understand, I, I did a tiny bit of research here and it says that when you were 12 years old, your mom's friend asked you to appear in the first episode of her cooking show because according to that chef, Jay is always the biggest goof in the room. <laughs> and when I discovered that, I thought, you know, I, 
I, I thought I had a connection with this guy, you know? I'm the youngest child. I don't know if you were, but um, that was a survival skill I honed as the, as the youngest child. But then you later worked for these companies that not many people have heard of, uh, like ESPN, Google, uh, HubSpot. Just amazing. And so if I first discovered you, you know, I'm a, still a HubSpot customer, HubSpot partner. And I, um, that's when I learned about uh, Jay Akunzo for the first time. I guess you were there for a few years. And when you wrote this book, um, taking to task the idea of following best practices, once again, you were really in my head because I had been following all kinds of best practices practices and and you know I'll get our friends at HubSpot who we who we love dearly they they're always trying to help their partners like any good partner channel program and they they would be saying well here's examples of what some really successful partners are doing and here's some things that we do that are helpful and I for the longest time would would try to copy some of that or or, or replicate it or whatever and then I read your book and I just thought man I completely understood why copying best practices uh, was was not really a best practice. So, if you could explain the thesis of the book and why it was so, uh, I think I got twice as much out of your book <laughs> than maybe another reader. <laughs> well, first of all, that's incredibly meaningful to hear. Thank you. Um, and. So there's this truth that I always held dear that that almost everybody would agree with because it's not an overly insightful thing to say, uh, but that truth does not jibe with how we operate at work. The truth is finding best practices is not the goal. Finding the best approach for you is. And the way we operate does not match that truth. So if we're like, yeah, of course, of course you want to find the best approach for you. Okay, how do we do that? Well, we live in this world of infinite apparent right answers being thrown at us from all angles, from our past selves, from the corporations we might work for and the conventional thinking bottled up therein, from the industries that we occupy to the jobs, to different channels we work on if we're marketers. Like there's just so many people, anyone with a Wi-Fi connection really, who can tell you there's a right and a wrong answer. And this all started in school. There's a correct answer, everything else must be wrong. And then you get out into the real world and you realize, actually, in most situations, there's very few right answers. And even the places that are supposedly fraught with correct answers, I think of the sciences here, they don't say, I have, I found the answer. They say, I now have, I took a hypothesis to the point where it's a theory, right? And what are theories, if not things to be continually questioned and hammered against and disproven and tweaked? And so this idea that we all want to find what the best approach is for us, it becomes really difficult to do that in this era of infinite information. It's like this dark side of the information age is, is advice overload. And so what we do, because we don't have a system for making choices and vetting infinite possibilities, we use a shortcut for that system, which we call the best practice. And the best practice professes to be the best for you, except it leaves out an incredible amount of variables present in your situation that were not present in the past in your own company or from whatever expert is giving you that idea. So I think it's a, it's an, it behooves us, if we want to do better work, to start with the variables present in our own situation and make what sounds like a simple switch, but two and a half years of research and a lot of pages of that book and a lot of podcast episodes showed me it's, oh, okay, it's not quite so simple. Um, stop acting like experts and start acting like investigators. 
because experts have absolutes and generalities and the supposed right answers, but investigators, they might be informed by that stuff. They might even use that stuff, but they don't really care. All they care about is asking better questions and finding what works for their unique situation. And I think we'd all be better off if we stopped trying to act like experts who have the answer and to be willing to raise our hand and say, you know, I don't have the answer, but I'm going to go figure this out in my unique situation. Let's go. And my theory, and I may be the only one, Jay Kunzo, but I've been giving some thought to you and your book. Robert Cialdini wrote Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion in 1984. And it was five years later before it started to take off for a variety of reasons. I'm wondering if this pandemic is actually going to bring about a much larger potential readership of your book because of what's happening. And the reason I say that is because everybody seems to be rethinking everything right now. And I think that's a good thing. We're all taking stock of what we're doing in our our lives and and, and in our businesses. And I hear this every day. Why are we doing it that way in the first place? Or why are we paying for this? Were were we even using this software subscription? (laughs) Were we even using this office rent, this office lease, you know, on and on and on. And I, it just, your book kept coming back like, well, I guess we were following a lot of best practices and it just seemed like a good idea, but now everyone is forced to, you know, look at things. What do you think? Uh, Well, I I always joked and kind of made fun of people who declare themselves best-selling authors, having appeared on no actual best-selling author lists. And then I realized some of those best-selling author lists, in fact, most of them are gamed systems, gameable systems. (laughs) Like Amazon. This one's an Amazon bestseller, yeah. So I proudly declare that I'm a good-selling author. And uh, I think right now, because of this pandemic, I'm a gooder-selling author because, yeah, that's just it. They're when you're pressed for time, when the screws tighten, when things matter more than ever in a certain thing you're working on, a project, a result that you're seeking, customer you're trying to serve, or career interests, or whatever, when when a lot of the BS stops seeming so important, what you're left with was like this is this profound sense of self and situational awareness. And beginning a decision by looking at that stuff first and then tapping the expertise the conventional wisdom, the new trend, if you hit a barrier along the way, that's a better way to make choices than what we usually do, which is we look for the convention. We look for what's most common. We look for what's trending or what others who sound smart are telling us to do. And like in this book, for example, I say, if we're going to act like investigators, we have to ask better questions of the variables in our context. And there's only three that are present every time we make a choice at work. One is you, the person or people doing the work. One is the customer, the person or people you're specifically serving, not a vague idea of a persona, but who they actually are. And third is your specific resources. And we can ask better questions about those three things to start making choices. I'm not saying reject best practices. I'm saying question them, put them to the test, add back the variables they miss because they're generalities, and then proceed from there because it's more specific and tailored to your your context. And at the end of the book, I admit, and I want to admit again, because I don't want to be a hypocrite. I'm not saying here are the exact questions to ask. I propose six in the book, but I admit you should come up with your own. Like, who am I to say, I know exactly what you should do in your situation because I don't know you specifically. Like, I think the best any of these experts can do is offer generic advice. Even a mentor who's tailoring things to you 
there's some gap between what they know and can offer and what you have to ultimately do yourself. So I, I agree. I hope the themes of this book are more timely even now. Um, be, and I hope what this leads to is people saying, look, good enough is not going to cut it. We have to be more tailored to our unique situation. And I don't know. I think there's something there's something really frustrating about most businesses who just sort of shrug and because they have time or because things are working, they just rely on what's worked forever in some generic sense because what gets chewed up and spit out there is people's willingness to bring their full selves to the work. And that's why the word intuition is in the subtitle because ultimately what this book is about is about a practical way to bring your full self to the work because when your eyes wide open like that, you make better choices and you do better things. And when you're not using your intuition or using less of it, it seems like companies are really copying what others are doing. And I like this idea that talks about how there's three kinds of companies. They all fall within one of three buckets. One is they're really focused on themselves, which is probably the largest number of companies. You know, they're focused on themselves and their products and their operations and that sort of thing. And a lot of their communication kind of reflects that. And then there's a second group that it will never admit it, but they're really obsessed with their competition. Monkey see, monkey do. <laughs> they're always uh, copying them. And then the third group are the ones that are sincerely focused on their customers, like Amazon. They're just obsessed with their customers, not really what the competition is. And they're the ones that do the, the most, uh, they're the ones that are the most successful. I wonder if that within that scheme that I've just shared, if the ones that are really focused much more on their competition, are they the ones that cling most tightly to best practices and seek comfort in them? I don't know. I think it sounds logical that they might. But then again, I think of a lot of companies who are genuinely focused on their customer. Like if you're incredibly mission driven, the stakes get really, really high. If you really take that mission seriously and believe in it, which ostensibly you should because you're working for that company. Um, and so when the stakes are so high, it can be really tempting. It's almost like you don't want to fail more than you'd like to succeed. And so I think, yeah, looking horizontally necessarily paints you as a reaction to the competition. It, and in some degree, that's why I don't like the, the pithy advice that we should be different in, in marketing. Like there, it's so, and I, I still believe in a lot of the tenets underlying that idea, but that idea is easy to twist into the wrong interpretation. Be different. Well, I give, I give, I give speeches. It's a big part of my business. I could give every one of my speeches this year with my back turned to the camera or turned to the crowd if we ever get back there. Like I'm different speaking backwards, but I'm not good. I'm not welcome. Because when you say be different, it comes with an implied question. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's the bourbon right now. <laughs> um, and I, it, it is true. I, I, have a, I have a nice little bourbon cocktail going on over here. Oh, what, um, uh, what brand are you uh, drinking there? You know, I've, I've dipped into my backup. I have this nice bottle of Makers <laughs> that was waiting for if I run out. And so I've gone through the good stuff. And now it's let's make some mixed drinks, but we'll use the kind of like, you know, the, what do they call it? The well drink? We'll use the well. So um, you, you, you're drinking Maker's Mark? It's Maker's. It's actually called a Whiskey Smash. Oh, okay. It's uh, fresh squeezed lemon, a little bit of simple syrup, and a little bit of bourbon. And I like to shake it because it gets a nice froth to it. And then you pour it right into the glass. And you can do other things like add a sprig of mint or something like that. But it's a nice way on a sunny day, it's starting to warm up in Boston, to have a dark liquor in a light way. Well, Jay, if you don't mind, I'm going to have to include Jay Acunzo's uh, recipe in your episode's show notes at marketingbookcocktails.com. 
I love it. If the whole like if artillery doesn't work out for you, I think you have a you could you can compete with Bon Appetit just for marketers. <laughs> right. That's right. So I'm sorry I, I interrupted. <laughs> uh, I, you know it does it doesn't matter. It, not, nothing matters. Time doesn't matter. No. Um, <laughs> what were we talking about? I don't know. I That's okay. Hey, you know, <laughs> you and me both, brother. Well, listen, I you talked about best practices. And so, of course, I'm reading your book and reading your book was, you know, kind of an experience. And then I bought something I'd never bought before. Death Wish Coffee. I ordered it oh, my goodness. online. And How are you still standing? I drank it all. This was like two years ago. This was uh, January of 2019 when I... I I know. How are you still here? (laughs) (laughs) Well, all the coffee I drank in the army (laughs) might have been a good warm-up. I don't know. Not that it was strong. It was just terrible. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Not not to beat up on my friends in, in the service. But can you tell the story about this Death Wish coffee guy? Because that's such a great example of what you said. You, your customer... And your specific resources. Yeah, sure. So I found Death Wish. Uh, I used my podcast, Unthinkable, as a public research vehicle for the book. It didn't start out that way. It just I just started by saying, I want to make a show called Unthinkable, which is about people who, who seem to reject conventional thinking. And it seems radical until you hear their stories. And then it's incredibly logical. And I always wondered why. It seems radical if all you know is the convention or the best practice in general. But in their specific situation, it always seemed logical. And that's how I landed on the, the concepts of, of the book. And so with Death Wish, there's this guy uh, living in upstate New York years ago. His name is Mike Brown. And he had this tiny coffee shop called Saratoga Coffee Traders. And he was tanking the business. Uh, like to the point where he had to sell his belongings and move, move home. It was going terribly. And one day, I, and, he and didn't told me he have like a degree in engineering or something? He he wasn't from that field. I think that was part of the issue. Is he had no idea how to run a coffee shop. Okay, and you know, predictably, he started to look for best practices, and he did really crazy things. He he sold like twenty five variations of coffee, I think two hundred types of candy. Uh, like he just he lost sight of the script, and and he also looked for someone else's script to graft on. And turns out he just used everybody's, right? Like 25 <laughs> types of coffee. Like he used every type of coffee shop bottled up into one. It was Well, terrible. and I should interject, best practices are very seductive. Well, that's the thing is if you want, it's a lot easier in this like influencer economy to sell the answer than it is to sell hard work or good luck or here's a better way to approach things that are a better lens you can take with you anywhere. Like it's easier to sell a map with directions drawn on it and go talk to the people who are or think they are going to that destination. It's a lot easier to do that than to say, this is a compass. Here's how a compass works. By the way, you're now a great navigator. And in any scenario, you can figure out how to get there. And and that's the kind of content I love to consume and, and love to create is I want to hand out compasses because I want to help create great navigators. I'd like to be a great navigator instead of the very limiting but fleetingly powerful, very enticing and tantalizing advertisement of, oh, you want to get there? Yeah, I have the map and I have the direction. Just come this way. It's a lot easier to sell stuff that way. So mm-hmm. I get why that's the case. So he had 25, what? He had uh, all these different coffees. He, he was yeah. just going crazy uh, thinking that by adding more, he would he would pull out of that nosedive. Right. And 
he he was doing a lot of research about why he was in that nosedive and a lot of the advice he got or research he found it kind of identified one flaw above all else which is that apparently he was roasting the wrong type of coffee bean and just for context for people who don't know i had to figure this out during the research but um, there's two very common types of coffee in the world there's arabica which makes like 70 percent of the crop something like that and then there's robusta which is most commonly found in uh instant coffees because it's kind of like the it's not so artisanal and delicious and floral. There's, it's really hard to be craft driven and, and make Robusta coffee. Uh, it's frowned upon by experts, but it's very common in instant coffees. And also, oddly enough, Italian espresso, bar, espresso bars in Italy, um, they use a lot of Robusta. And, but as the story unfolds, we learn that Mike used that bean because he learned about his customers. His customers weren't these artisanal people. They weren't like me trying to write my next book in a coffee shop next to some exposed brick, they were truck drivers and entrepreneurs and construction workers. These very hard-charging, hard-working individuals who reach for coffee, like an Italian might reach for an espresso at a local cafe, or like I might reach for an energy drink or something like that. They wanted the transaction. They wanted stronger coffee. And so he realized that these Robusta beans had more caffeine content after you roast them. So he used more parts Robusta than his competition was comfortable doing or any expert would advise him to do that. And he invented the world's strongest coffee. It's called Death Wish Coffee. It's two and a half times the average cup. It will make you twitch. <laughs> yeah, when I did drink that, uh, that batch of coffee that I purchased from him, it was the, the most productive month in my life. I, I have since writing the book, I got to go up to the, their headquarters and do um, what they call a cupping, which is when you sample it and you, it's very, you, you sort of slurp it and you, you, you let it soak in water and you, you sift aside the beans that are floating there and you slurp it. It's a whole process. Very, it is very artisanal, even though their customers don't necessarily reach for it all the time. Like an artist would in a local cafe in Brooklyn. Um, but so in this cupping, I was, they were sampling new flavors. Like they have a pumpkin spice coffee. They have several different beans and different roasts they were trying out. And I had to go through probably seven or eight cuppings, seven or eight versions of the coffee. Now, were my, you drinking it or did you spit it out? My left eye almost popped out of my skull. Oh, it wow. was insanity. And no, I, I, it's, you can't not sip a little bit of it. Oh, okay. And you do that for three or four hours in a row and good luck. Wow. So it wasn't like Gary Vaynerchuk on Wine Library where he would then taste the wine and then spit it into a New York Jets bucket. I I think I may have been too tempted by the flavor and the smells of coffee, and I probably drank a little bit too much of it. But Oh, I would definitely um, do that, yeah. But the reason I love this story so much is everybody told him, don't roast Robusta. You're crazy. And I think in general, it is crazy what he chose to do. But he does not operate in a generality. He operates in his situation. And in his situation, first and foremost, he wanted to create the world's strongest coffee. It's a lot easier to do that if you use Robusta beans. In his situation, his customers were not the typical coffee shop goer. They were, and if you look at the uh, economy of upstate New York around that time, almost every area was losing jobs except for Albany, the state capital, and Saratoga, the area Mike was working in. And so in came a lot of people who were looking for blue collar work. 
So they were very driven, very hard charging type of people. Like the actual data of what was going on in his work backs up the human insight that he had just by talking to customers. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't want something lower and weaker and artisanal. They wanted stronger coffee in the form of, you know, that death wish idea. They wanted to work really hard. That's why they wanted coffee. That was the insight he had. They didn't necessarily just want some, you know, floral smells and nice little <laughs> neat coffee shop with little pastries, like very different environment. Not a lot um, of man buns in his coffee shop. No, I'd say not. No. Uh, but, but the punchline here is when we pay more attention to our customers than to the industry, the customer pays more attention to us. And we're so tempted to get caught up in the industry echo chamber. I mean, I create content for makers and marketers. I'm part of the echo chamber. But at the end of the day, we can't lose sight of what it's all for, which is for serving the people we're here to serve. And there's some kind of tasty little insight floating right in front of your nose that that person can provide for you that the general expert will not. And Mike was willing to actually look at that and take it seriously in a world where we throw aside that self-awareness and that situational awareness and we look for the answers out there in some vague idea of the expert, the right answer, the best practice. Mike was just willing to use his firsthand investigation skills instead of trying to be an expert or find one. That's terrific. And he was listening to his customers. And uh, that seems to be one of the secrets to success. But yet, like challenging uh, best practices, it's really difficult for companies to do. So, one bit of uh, Jay Akunzo trivia. Weren't you uh, voted top speaker at a recent content marketing world? <laughs> was that 2017? It was, yeah. Uh, content marketing world, yeah. Well, my, my favorite event every year, yeah. yeah. And it's terrific. And just yesterday, I interviewed uh, a very good friend of yours, uh, Andrew Davis, and I think he was voted top speaker the year after and in and, and an earlier year. And so I think you could just be known, oh, he's just a really fantastic writer and a great author. But no, 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 Jay Akunzo, you have to break the wheel. Now you're one of the top speakers. I've got to ask, what do you think is this going to do to uh, this pandemic, short-term, long-term, to uh, speakers like you, live events? And what role do you think webinars are going to start to play? It breaks my heart that there truly is nothing like an amazing in-person experience. I mean, the the webinar, the Zoom call, the best technology, if there's a screen in between, it's a it's a cheap facsimile of what is actually going on in, in person. Um, the palpable energy is gone. The speaker can't hear laughter. I mean, there's subtle things like that performance-wise, all the way up to the bigness of the the emotions, the serendipity of bumping into people, all of that. Um, and so for the last three years, I've been a big proponent of in-person events. I've been a speaker at them. And it, you know, one of the things I'm trying to think through now is I've done a lot of highly produced podcast work. I've done a few highly produced documentary series, like video series out in the field, you know, lots of post-production, lots of planning, lots of scripting, lots of post. And I've noticed that a lot of people are not using those fields as learning grounds for virtual events, but virtual events are, they should be experiential. They should be immersive. They should use production elements 
to put back what's lost when you move from an offline event to an online event. And so that's actually something that I'm doing right now with speakers as a service, as I'm taking everything I've learned through documentary and narrative style podcasts and I'm applying the process to their speeches so that they can maximize the moment. Because what happens is this really terrible domino effect if you don't do that, where the content, even if you're amazing, you're charming, you're witty, you have great stories, great material, we're taking something so impactful and professional on a stage and we're bottling it up and delivering it in a way that cheapens it in this JV environment. And that's a disservice to the audience the uh, because the content is weaker, the attendees aren't as excited. They might not pay as much. They don't view it as something as as impactful because they're so used to the lower brow kind of webinar and webcam setup. So they don't pay as much, or as many people don't pay. So the events can't earn their revenue. So their hard work doesn't go as rewarded. Sponsors aren't as excited. Speakers aren't getting paid. There's just this connectivity that we're seeing in everything. Right, everything is super connected, and. I think it all comes back to this atomic unit of the experience, the content. If you can make that immersive, if you can actually produce even just moments within a talk to be experiential, to actually impact somebody in the way that they they are used to getting offline from their favorite speakers, now you actually create a field with virtual events that could maybe mimic even just a step removed, but close enough to in-person events. But without that, I feel like it's just yet another Zoom call. Um, and there's only so many like intimate stripped down conversations we can have before it's like, I want to be inspired again. I want to feel again. I want to have that huge like oomph that like I call it chest lightning, you know, those moments that just hit you. Mm-hmm. And so, so, you know, for me, I'm taking part of my time and a lot of the past years I have in production and trying to funnel that towards events because maybe I can help a few speakers and a few events, you know, put back some of those elements that are lost because my whole thing is, you know, events online are different, but different shouldn't mean worse. Yes, and I don't like what's happening to the world and, and to people, but there are going to be things that come out of this that are going to be very helpful and um, somewhat revolutionary. And I think there are, there are uh, people like you and Andrew Davis and Rohit Bargava, who I've spoken to, who are really thinking hard about how to revolutionize this rather dreary webinar notion. There's so many more things that could be done short of a a live event or perhaps in addition to future live events. I can't wait to, to see what comes from all that. Explain briefly, what is it that Marketing Showrunners does? So we are, we're a media and education company. And our whole goal is to help marketers find and share their voices and make a difference with their shows. A really pithy way of saying that is we want marketers to make their audience's favorite shows. And so podcasts or video right now, we're really focused on podcasting because a lot of good video shows, um, either it's a little behind audio in terms of marketers investment, but also a lot of, um, very, I think ambitious creators who are doing in the field reporting or documentary style stuff. Obviously that's been scaled back. Um, and podcasts are, excuse me, on the rise. So that's what we're doing. We're doing a lot of blogging. We have a podcast called Three Clips, which deconstructs great podcasts, a few little pieces at a time. And then we're also offering podcast workshops for marketers. Um, they're not all marketers, but perf- but mostly they have businesses that are not through the podcast directly. They're not ad revenue based. So they're, they're freelancers, they're entrepreneurs, they're making money through selling products and service. 
services and their podcast supports that. Um, so we're doing online interactive peer group based workshops. Uh, we're actually piloting the first class through that process. Yeah. Talk about that because you and I was reading up on that. Like, <laughs> what is he doing next, man? You're, you're, you've got a program. I think it's, it's full now, but explain this, what, what you're trying to do with that, because that's such a great example of breaking the wheel where you're, you're offering this, but you're probably trying to get as much learning out of it far more than, than whatever the costs are. Oh, so you're asking about my, my approach with the, sh- with the workshop pilot. Yeah. The, the, right. um, yeah, that program that you've just started, I just saw it. it looks like you were still trying, you were starting to put it together uh, like yeah. a, a cohort. Right. And, and, but you hinted at the fact that it's pretty, it's pretty stripped down the way we're doing it. And so what we did very similar to with my book, we found with the book that the best way to do research and also, honestly, the best way to build audience that wants what you're selling and wants to come along this journey of learning and understanding with you is, is you do it in public. Build what you're building towards all along the way, even if you're not telling people that's what you're doing. Um, with, with showrunners, for the blog and also for three clips. So the blog was like big concept focus. Like how do you write for audio as different from blogging? How do you uh, create someone's favorite show? Like, what does it mean to be someone's favorite in the first place? Let's look at the psychology of media and how it affects our work as creators. Like all these big ideas kind of like bottled up into blog posts for the last year on showrunners sent through our email list. And then the podcast, Three Clips, was always about finding and understanding examples. So now we have these pressure tested ideas and these examples that we've deconstructed and analyzed. And so we put together a system based on what we learned and heard from the audience in public using that content into a, a workshop, into this eight-week experience with a group of people that are your peers. And we're piloting that. I'm almost buying zero technology. It's all through like Google Docs and, and you know free trials of stuff because I don't care about it being polished yet. I'm just trying to put 10 students through it to see what works and what doesn't and pressure test it so I can make it a better process. So that's just like always how I like to work coming out of the startup world is I kind of see the mountain peak in the distance. I have an, a machete in my hand. Let me hack away for a little bit and make sure I'm heading in the right direction before I scream at everybody else like, oh my gosh, we found the path. Come with me. Right. That minimum viable product. Totally. I, I just, I'm convinced everything is always that. Like everything is always an experiment. Everything is always learning. And so the way I'm doing that with the workshop is I, I have 10 really creative, really generous um, marketers. There's a, a couple VPs of marketing. There's some freelancers. Uh, there's one higher ed marketer. And we're going to go through this process together, which is really focused on student interaction and the, and the work we're doing together on our actual shows. And it's not going to be so fancy. It's not going to be so polished and well-designed because that's for later. That's for when we think the process is great and the people will benefit. We'll make it you know, feel a little bit smoother that way. But the experience is going to be great. And I don't think uh, <laughs> time from, uh, a year from now, they're not going to remember that you use Google Docs. They're not going to care that. They're going to have met other people, learn from them. They're probably going to have you know, lifelong friends. So yeah, interesting. Well, Jay, are there any other books in your future? It's funny. I mean, I've been spending a year of my life trying to figure out what does it take to make someone's favorite show. And every time I write about it, I'm looking at these posts and I'm like, you could replace show with almost anything in this article. (laughs) And so I'm really fascinated by what it takes to just set aside a lot of the jargon, set aside a lot of the things we think the work is as makers and marketers, and just look at this really complex challenge. How do you make someone's favorite thing? 
What would that take? Because if you did that, so much gets better. They select you in a world of infinite choice. They spend time with you. They develop trust and love. Everything gets better. What would it take to make someone's favorite thing? So I'm, I'm kind of circling maybe that as a next topic I dive into. Um, and so I'm starting to use my podcast, Unthinkable, to do what I'm doing with showrunners, which is I'm elevating outside of shows on the pod. And I'm like, okay, what are the concepts I need to aerate? What are the stories I could tell? You know, we just did an episode about Theseus's ship, which is a fascinating concept from, it's a field I just discovered. They call it the metaphysics of identity. It's like, okay, I didn't know that was a thing. Let me dive into it and talk about it publicly and just see what sticks. Um, so maybe that's the next book. I don't know. You, you heard it. This is an exclusive. I have no idea. This is why you people listen to the Marketing Book Podcast. This is, is, why, to, you're, uh, you're, this is why you said bring a cocktail. Is really bring, You wanted a scoop. I, w- I want to get these authors liquored up. <laughs> And I want to hear about their next book. For the seven people that care about Jay's next book, (laughs) six of which are last named Akunzo, you better drink on this show. No, 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 no. Well, the thing that comes to mind is when you talk about that, you're describing a book that would actually have a very long shelf life because there are new mediums or techniques or whatever that would come along. And if you're focusing on what it is that gets somebody to uh, like your whatever it is you're making better than others – it's, it becomes you know somewhat somewhat timeless because there, you know, there's probably going to be some successor to podcasts or you know whatever it is we're consuming these days. So don't uh, don't give up on that. But I and I certainly look uh, forward to uh, hearing more about that. And as I like to say, I know this guy who interviews authors of books. He has a podcast, and you know he's not the brightest bulb on the chandelier, but his guests are phenomenal. And I think I could get you on his show. So. Little do you know that I, I am in admiration of your prep work and your research and your and your on mic presence and all these things. I'm like, how could I get Douglas to come and speak to our workshop students as a guest lecture? Well, there's it's one word, uh, alcohol. Actually, it's two words, <laughs> free alcohol. <Yeah>. So, <laughs> hey, I'm cheap, but I'm not easy. Okay, so Jay Akonzo. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, have you come back to the Marketing Book Podcast for this uh, special, hopefully limited time series of authors in quarantine getting cocktails. And I hope that you and the family and everyone in your world continues to stay safe and healthy and reasonably sane. This was a total pleasure. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for giving people this, this series. I think it's so needed. So you're the best.